You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Lord, we're just so blessed. So thankful that you do reign. In your mercy and in your grace, you chose to insert yourself into the plight that we had created in Adam. And as the second Adam, you took all of our sin, all of that which separated us from you, on yourself and in your great mercy you've caused us to be born again to a living hope we're alive in Christ new creatures and we're going to heaven we'll see you face to face one day And I'm just so grateful, Lord, that we can worship you and praise you and honor you. Come again on the first day of the week to celebrate the resurrection and pledge your love and our devotion and our commitment and our service. So Lord, we just ask that you would meet us now in in the word. I pray that as we open the scriptures, you would speak to our hearts. Transform us and change us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I, uh, I don't know any of you, and here I am weeping in front of you. That's kind of weird, isn't it? But the, uh, the fact is we're family. Our, uh, we're family in the sense that uh, we are filled with the Spirit of God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, but we're also family in the GCC. Um, my life has been in transition these last couple of um, uh, last couple of years. We, um, uh, I transitioned out of my role as the lead pastor at Living Hope Church in Georgetown, Ontario, and um, I officially stepped down from that position in uh, in September. And with that, we also have left our denomination and have joined the Great Commission Collective. So uh, in terms of our affiliation with church family, we are, we are family, and it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, one of the reasons that we chose to affiliate with the uh, GCC is because of the uh, distinctives that GCC holds. And I think you know what they are. Um, they are bold preaching fervent prayer, courageous evangelism, strategic church planting, purposeful discipleship, and passionate worship. And these are values and distinctives that we as a church held, and as we look for a denomination or a church family or an affiliation with which we could join, we saw these as being things that the GCC held strongly, and so we embraced the GCC, and we're encouraged that they have embraced us. 
So these distinctives, these six things that uh, characterize us as the GCC are things that we as a congregation uh, hold tightly to and always have. And so when we joined the GCC, we put up banners across the, the, the front of our church with these six distinctives on, and we changed our website and put these distinctives on, and we, we, um, we talk about these things um, to remind us that this is what we are all about. We're committed to the, to the Great Commission Collective, but... As you know, putting up banners and changing your website and making corporate commitments to certain values and principles, although good, really doesn't fundamentally change a church. What changes a church is transformed people, transformed individuals, because a church in many respects is its people. Not in every respect, but in many respects, my church is a reflection of me. This church is a reflection of you. In some respects, we are the sum of our parts. In some respects, Hope Niagara and Living Hope Georgetown is you and me. When new people used to come to my church, when I was a senior pastor, I would go and visit them. And one of the things I would always say to them, well, I would say two things. One, one, of, one of the things I would say is, at some point in time, I'm going to mess up, I'm going to hurt you, I'm going to do something inadvertently to cause you pain. When I do, please know that it wasn't intentional. Come to me and, and tell me I've done it. I'll ask for forgiveness and, and we can have a good relationship again. Because I'm going to do the same thing in your life. And that was the first thing I said. The second thing I th said was, you're kind of like a little shot of paint coming into this paint can of Living Hope Church. And you're going to um, tint who we are. You're going to change us by your very presence. Your personality, your gift mix, the challenges that you bring, the sin that you bring is going to enhance and enliven and shape us in a positive way or it's going to detract from us. Every one of us shapes and impacts who this congregation is. So in reality, we can put up banners and we can change our website and we can make commitments to be certain kind of church. But unless and until we personally commit to being the people that God wants us to be individually, we can never be who he's called us to be corporately. Does that make sense? Until we become committed to being the people that he has called us to be individually, we can never be corporately what we want to be in what God has called us to be. It's easy to talk about corporate. It's harder to talk about personal because when we talk about personal responsibilities, what God has called us to be, it really brings it home, right? It brings it to our doorstep. It brings it to where we live. So what is God calling Hope Niagara to be? can be answered in many respects by answering the question, what is God calling you to be? And to answer that question, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 1 is a, um, in the introduction, Paul introduces himself. And what we notice in this passage of Scripture is that Paul had settled some very fundamental, basic issues Issues about his identity, his purpose, his motivation, and his calling. 
Paul gives us a glimpse into who he is in this introduction to this little book, the third of the pastoral epistles. Paul had nailed these issues down. There was no question in his mind about who he was, his identity, his purpose, his motivation, and his calling. And so I'd like to read this passage for you and then work our way through it in this message. Titus chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in the hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifest in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. So a little bit of a, a backstory here. At some point, probably after Paul's um, first imprisonment, he had been released, we think, by Nero the emperor. And he and Titus are on a missionary journey. They go to Crete, and they find in Crete a number of churches that are in a, a terrible, really deplorable situation. These churches were struggling with false teachers, unqualified leaders, corrupt theology, and rampant ungodliness. And so what Paul does is he leaves Titus in Crete to take care of these churches, to put in order what needs to be fixed. And he goes off to Mesopotamia, and at some point in time subsequent to that, he writes a letter to Titus, and this is the letter that we have, encouraging him and, and sharing with him the things that he wants Paul wants Titus to do to help these churches. In this passage of scripture, we get the longest, most detailed, most theologically dense introduction that Paul gives in any of his epistles, epistles with the exception of the book of, of Romans. And he introduces himself, and in this introduction, he gives us a glimpse into who he is. Typically, a letter would, would follow this pattern in the introduction. The, the author would introduce himself, and then he would identify his reader and then offer greetings. And this is exactly what Paul does in this letter. And he's describing himself. He talks about himself. And it's that that I want us to look at this morning, how Paul identifies himself. And I want us to see that he had these things nailed down about himself. And my, my premise is this, that if we're going to be the church that God has called us to be, we've got to nail these things down. These are things that are sort of first principle, fundamental things. They're basic things that we as Christians need to have nailed down. They need to be settled issues in our lives if we're going to bless this church. If we're going to be a positive, redemptive, holy influence on this congregation, so this congregation can be all that God has called you to be, these are the kind of qualities that need to be seen in our lives. These are the things that need to be settled, absolutely, in each of our lives. And the first one is this. Paul knew his identity. There was no question in his mind about who he was. Look at what he says. I'm a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. The word servant there could mean slave or bond servant. And the word apostle means, simply means one who is sent to represent. So when Paul describes himself, when he defines himself, when he sort of speaks about his identity, he says, I am a slave of God 
and an apostle, a sent one representing Jesus Christ. He was, Paul was many things. Paul was a, a scholar. Paul was a, a preacher. Paul was a, an uncle. But Paul was a traveling missionary. Paul did a lot of things. But when you distilled it down, when Paul described himself, the fundamental essence of who he was, he says this, I am a slave of God and I represent Jesus in the world. For Paul, these issues were absolutely settled. He didn't wrestle with the question, who am I? He didn't, he didn't ask himself, what, what do I want to project? What identity do I want to see, do I want the world to see when they look at me? For Paul, that was defined by how God had defined him. He was a slave and he was a representative representing Jesus. At his conversion, he was transformed fundamentally, and that became his identity. And Paul's fundamental identity and my fundamental identity and your fundamental identity as followers of Jesus is exactly the same. When we strip it all away, when we take out what we do for a living, when we take out all of the things that define us superficially and bore down to the core of who we are, as Christians, we are slaves of God called to go and represent Jesus in this world. That is who you are. That is who I am. That is my identity. That is your identity. And unless we settle that issue, finally, we can never be the people that God has called us to be and we'll never bless the church the way that God has called us to bless this church. 1 Corinthians 6.20, Paul says, we are bought with a price. We are purchased by God. We have been redeemed by God, Peter says, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with that which is imperishable. We have been redeemed, we've been purchased, we have been bought with the blood of the Lamb. So you are not your own. You are a blood-bought slave of God. And you have been called, according to Matthew 28, to go. Every single one of us and every single generation of the church has been given this mandate. Go into the world and share the good news. Matthew 20. 28, 18 to 20. So who are you? Who am I? When we strip it all away, we are blood-bought servants of Jesus, who are called, or of God, who are called to represent Jesus. Today, you know, we hear a lot of people saying, well, I'm one thing, but I identify as another. And a lot of times we look at that and we say, that doesn't make any sense. You know, that was the fundamental problem, one of the fundamental problems that Titus had to address in Crete. People who were calling themselves Christians, calling themselves followers of God, but were, were denying him by their works, by how they were living their lives. Their profession and their projected identity weren't lining up. We're called as slaves of God and representatives of Jesus Christ. Many of us would like to be Christians and then be seen by the world, be identified by the world, be recognized by our culture in some other facet or some other fashion. 
We want to be seen as successful. We want to be seen as intelligent. We want to fit in. We often seek our identity rooted in worldly success and wealth or prestige or whatever else. And sadly, a lot of us tend to worry more about what people think of us rather than what God thinks of us. And the reason that we're like that is we haven't settled this issue of who I am or or better said, whose I am. We've got to settle this issue. Whose are you? You belong. You've been purchased by God himself. Years ago, I had the great privilege of traveling to India. And one of the things I did there was I, I preached in the New Delhi Bible Fellowship. I was young. Still young, but not as young. But I was young back then, and I preached this sermon. I poured my heart out into the sermon. After the sermon was over, a man comes up to me and he says, Hi, I'd like to introduce myself. My name's Bill. I said, Hey, Bill, nice to meet you. We shook hands back. It was a previous century. We were allowed to shake hands back then. And I said, uh, I said, Bill, what do you do? He says, uh, oh, well, I work for the Canadian government here in India. I said, oh, what do, you, what, what do you do for the Canadian government here in India? He says, well, I'm the ambassador from Canada. And I said, well, that's cool. And he said, would you like to come to the embassy? I said, I'd love to come to the embassy. So there's a bunch of us there. And uh, the next day, uh, you know, a car came and, and drove us to the embassy. It was really, I felt really important. And... Uh, the gate opened, and the cool thing was, you open the gate to the embassy, and I stepped into the embassy compound, and it was like I was walking into Canada. There was grass like Canada, there was buildings like Canada, the house looked like a, um, something you might see on the bridal path in Toronto, one of these big kind of palatial homes. And it was like I was walking into Canada, and I met with the ambassador, and there's a picture of the prime minister on the wall. I think it was Brian Mulrooney that gives you how, an idea how long ago it was. And I, and I realized that this ambassador was in some senses representing under the authority of the Canadian government, and he was there in India representing Canada. He was an ambassador representing Canada. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. This is, this is taken from 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if any of us have been born again, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is Christ, that, that, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself and not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of real reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. That's who we are. We are blood-bought, deeply loved servants who are called to go as ambassadors. And if we don't understand that, if we we don't settle this issue as a first principle in our Christian lives, we can never be the people that God has called us to be. Paul made the impact that he did because he understood that he was bought with a price. He understood that he was called to represent Jesus. And when you strip everything else away, his itinerant ministry, his mentoring, his scholarship, his letter writing, you stripped it all away and you got to the basis of who he was as a man. He was a slave of God called to represent Jesus. And that's exactly who you are. That's exactly who I am. When we go into our week, this coming week, we've got to identify as that. 
That must define us. That must influence how we live our lives. Think about what your church would be like. Think about what my church would be like if every single person who called that church, this church and my church, their home church. What would we be like if all of us were committed to that idea that we're blood-bought slaves of Jesus and our job is to get into, this, into the context in which he has called us to go and represent him? The first thing is identity. The second thing is purpose. Look at what he says. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So Paul's servitude to God had one sort of basic purpose. It was for the sake of the faith of God's elect people. And the knowledge of the truth, which ultimately leads to godliness. So Paul, in a few words, was able to tell his reason for being. What were you about, Paul? What's, what's your fundamental reason for being? Your raison d'etre. What are you about? Well, I'm for the faith of God's elect people and the dissemination and the defense of the truth Because when you put those two things together, you get godliness. Godliness. So he preached the gospel. He preached the gospel of grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. And he was fearless in his proclamation of the faith. He begged people to be reconciled to God. He begged people to trust, put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he disseminated truth. He talked about the truth. He wrote about the truth. He preached the truth. He corrected when there was errors. And why was this Paul's passion? Why was it his purpose in life? One word, godliness. So think about this as an equation. When you put genuine Christian faith together with the truth of the word of God, you get godliness. Genuine faith plus truth equals godliness. Why was this Paul's passion? Because godliness was the consequence. And what is godliness? It's God's likeness in us. It's God's likeness in us. Paul knew that the image of God had been defaced and and fundamentally marred by the fall, by what Adam had done. And he also knew that it could be godliness, the image of God, the likeness of God in human beings could be restored through the gospel. Through genuine faith and good theology, the image and the likeness of God can again be reflected in humanity through you and me. The reason that Paul's purpose was what it is was because he wanted the glory of God to be seen in the people of God. The glory of God, the likeness of God, the magnificence and the majesty of God, who he is, his character, his likeness, his magnificence, reflected in his redeemed creatures. That's why Paul got out of bed in the morning. That's what made him tick. 
That's what caused him to do all that he did. He knew that through faith, understood, real, genuine, not counterfeit faith, real Christian faith, real, truly born-again people, with good theology, when you put those two things together, you get the likeness of God in human beings. And God is glorified as a consequence. He was passionate about the glory of God. As I said a second ago, you can see it in verse 16 of this particular chapter. The problem in Crete was this. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. They profess to know God, as I said earlier, but they denied him by their works. Some who professed God, some who professed faith, some who professed to be followers of Jesus in Crete were not producing godliness. They were not glorifying God by their life. They were doing exactly the opposite. They were detestable. And so when you think about this as an equation, one of two things was was wrong. There was a short circuit in one of two places. Either, either, their faith wasn't genuine. It was a counterfeit faith. Or two, their theology, their their truth foundation was flimsy. It was wrong. It was in error. And the same thing can be said today. That if, if a person has genuine faith, as I said a second ago, and good theology the result is going to be godliness in our lives. However, if there is a short circuit, if our faith isn't genuine, or if our theology is incorrect, the result is going to be ungodliness. And so can you see why this this got Paul out of bed in the morning? Do you see why this caused him to live a life that caused him to be shipwrecked four times in total, beaten persecuted, stoned. He was so passionate about the glory of God being reflected in the people of the churches that he ministered to that he taught the faith of the gospel and the truth of the gospel because he knew that when you put those two things together, you get godliness. And when godliness is seen in the life of a Christian, when we reflect the image of God, who gets the glory? He does. He does. So that's why he tells Titus to do the following. Look at verse 13 with me. Look at what he says in verse 13 of chapter 1. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith. See that? He talks about the Cretans and who they are. And he says, this testimony is true. So therefore, I want you to rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in faith. Get out of chapter 2, verse 1. He says something else. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. You see, he uses this word sound there five times in the book. And each time he uses that word sound, he's talking about theology or doctrine. The word itself is the word from which we get the word hygiene. And it means to be healthy, robust, strong. So think about this, what Paul is saying. A healthy Faith, combined with healthy theology, produces godliness, and godliness 
glorifies God. So let's work backwards for a second in your life. You're struggling with godliness. You know that you're more like these people in Crete than you are a reflection of the glory of God. You're struggling with godliness. Your life doesn't reflect the glory of God the way that you would like it to. What's the problem? Well, there's one of two issues. The first issue is that your faith may be counterfeit. Your faith may be counterfeit. Folks, there are people who sit in evangelical churches all over North America who think because they have simply prayed a prayer and given intellectual assent to a bunch of theological propositions that they have been born again, and they're not. To be born again is not just an intellectual exercise where you look at all of the options and you say, this Christianity is most plausible, so I will choose to call myself a Christian. That is not what it means to be born again. To be born again is so much more visceral. It is so much deeper than that. It is to come into a living, transformative relationship with the person of Jesus. To be born again is to be quickened from the dead by the power of, your Holy, of the Holy Spirit so that we become, as, I said, as we read a second ago, new creations where the old has passed away and behold, everything becomes new by grace. It is to fall in love with Jesus Christ, to live in intimate fellowship with him. Yes, the theological propositional stuff is important, clearly. That is the beginning of faith, where we sort of check the boxes and say, yes, I believe that, I believe that, I believe that. But listen, Satan believes, doesn't he? To be born again is on the foundation of the theological propositions of the Christian faith, on the foundation of that to come into a living relationship with Jesus, where there are moments in our lives, this happened to me this morning in that last song when we were worshiping after communion, where the Spirit of God witnesses to my spirit and says, Son, I love you. You're mine. I died. I died in your place. And there are moments of sweet, deep intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't have that, you can rededicate yourself, you can reaffirm, you can get baptized, you can do all kinds of stuff. You're not going to see godliness in your life. Because faith, genuine faith, is critical in this equation. Secondly, he talks about sound theology. That's the second part of it. Sound theology, growing in the truth, understanding what the scripture says. You know, we just left our denomination, and it wasn't easy. And it's, it's costing us well, hundreds of well, millions of dollars to do this. Because theology matters. What we believe is absolutely critical to how we live. And where do you find theology? Every single one of us is a theologian. Even if you're one of those guys who says, I don't really care about theology, that's a theological statement. Where do we find it? We find it in the pages of this book. Just read it. Better still, have somebody read it to you because that's how it was apprehended the first time. 
wasn't, I wasn't apprehended by somebody studying it and pouring over it with a pencil and trying to parse all the verse. It was just heard. It, was just, it just washed over those first century hearers, and they heard God's voice in the pages of the Scriptures. So how are we transformed? How does godliness get produced in our lives? Well, it's genuine faith, a deep relational intimacy with Jesus based on the truth of the gospel and the word of God. And when you take the incarnate word of God who dwells in you and the living word of God which you hold in your hand and you make those two things the purpose of your life, you will be more godly. He will change you. You will be transformed. Slowly but inexorably, you will become more and more and more like Jesus. And he will be glorified in your life. You see, that was Paul's purpose. And it needs to be our purpose. Fundamentally, that needs to be what we're about. The incarnate word of God in relationship daily with him and the living word of God in our hands daily, opening our hearts to him and to his word. And by grace, you will be transformed slowly but surely, progressively into the image of Christ. And here's, and here's why it's so important. God is glorified. People glorify God because of you. What was lost at the fall what was defaced and marred and what is causing so much damage in the culture in which we live is erased in us and we stand as a living alternative to the blindness, the lostness, the confusion and the, and the corruption of our world. God is glorified. Quickly, thirdly, Paul was properly motivated. So he knew his identity, he knew his purpose, he knew his motivation. What motivated Paul? We'll look at verse 2. In the hope of eternal life. In the hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching of the gospel. What was Paul's motivation? Was it self-aggrandizement? Was it comfort? Was it pleasure? Was it all the accoutrements of society and our culture and all the good things that this world gives to us? What's the answer? Obviously, no. Paul was motivated by the hope of eternal life. That's what made him tick. He didn't live for the moment. He wasn't focused on the temporal or the physical or the promises of this world. He was motivated by what God had promised. Years ago, we took our girls to... Uh, to France for a family vacation. We stayed in a little place called Antibes, and we would drive from Antibes to all of these places. And both my daughters, at that time and even today, are voracious readers. They love to read. So one is 13, one's 10, and they're in the back of their this rented car with Cindy and me in the front. We're driving along through the south of France, and you know, you're driving, it's just absolutely spectacular. These lavender fields, right? Just beautiful. And they're back in the back of the car reading you know, Jane Austen and Pride and Prejudice and, you know, about Mr. Darcy. Have you ever watched Pride and Prejudice? No? Anyways, if you have two daughters, you watch Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen. And they're, and they're reading these books in the back seat, and I'm saying, girls, look out, look at this, look at that. 
And I remember my older daughter looking up and Ashley looking up and looking out and going, yeah, whatever. And she goes back to the book. And it just sort of like, I thought, you know, at that time, I thought it's so much like many of us. We, we have our nose in the fiction of our culture that this life matters, that the one who has the most toys when he dies wins, that you only go around once in life, so get all the gusty you can get. And we miss the eternal weight of glory that God shouts to us. Paul's confidence was so strong because he knew that God cannot lie, that God had made a promise, and that in time, in the right time, had manifested that promise in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew the story of redemption. He knew the sort of the meta-narrative of the Bible. And he was convinced beyond any shadow of a doubt that this life is a fleeting, momentary existence. And what, when real life begins is the moment we close our eyes in death. And so that's why the Apostle Paul was who he was. He wasn't living for the here and now. He wasn't living for what this life promises. He was living for what God had promised in the next life. This is what, this is what he says. He says, we don't lose heart. Now, if there's anybody that had, <laughs> had reason to lose heart, it was the Apostle Paul, right? Beaten with rods, shipwrecked uh, four times. He was, he was ultimately executed for his faith. He was stoned. He was left for dead. He, he had, it was just, it was a tough life. And he says, but I don't lose heart. And we don't lose heart. Why? Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this momentary light affliction. Don't you love that? Left for dead, stoned, shipwrecked, adrift on the, on the Mediterranean Sea for a night and day. This momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And this is it. As we look, not at things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul looked beyond the things that he could see to the things that he could see in the unseen world. And we've got to do that. We've got to look beyond the things that we can see in the temporal world and look to the things that we can see in the unseen world. And why can we see those things? God doesn't lie. He made a promise. The Old Testament is just full of it. Over and over and over again, Messiah is coming. The son of David is coming. We read a promise this morning. It was up on the, up on the screen. And then finally, at the right time, in the fullness of time, God sent his son that first Christmas. He lived a perfect life. He died a, as a sinless sacrifice for our sin. He rose again from the dead. And he says, come to me. Come to me. And I will give you eternal life. And all of us who have truly come to him Understand that that's the big story. That's the meta narrative. That's where we're going. That's where it ends. In the presence of Jesus, we'll see him face to face. And when we do, we'll instantly be transformed into his likeness. That's something worth living for. It's something worth dying for.
Tomorrow marks the anniversary of the death of my best friend. There's a guy named Bob. He, uh, I led him to the Lord back in the early 90s. He was a businessman. He closed his business, became a pastor in our, he became an elder, he closed his business, became a pastor in our church. He went to the Alliston Church and served up there for 10 years. He came back to our church, he joined our staff again. He was serving the seniors in our, in our, in our church. And he got sick and, and died. And sort of the anniversary of his de- death is tomorrow. I saw him the night before, two nights before he died when he was still conscious. And we held hands, we prayed together. He said, Paul, this is why God saved me. This is why God saved me. He knew where he was going. I saw him about two hours before he passed. My wife and I left the hospital room. And Mary Lou's wife came out. And she said this. For 30 years, he has given himself unreservedly to Jesus. Like, what a testimony. He lived for Jesus. And when he died... He knew beyond a shadow of a doubt where he was going. (laughs) See, he was motivated. He had a really successful business. He had a huge big house. He had fancy cars. And all of that slowly went away as he poured his life, the last ounce of his life, into serving Jesus. That's what motivated him. That's what motivated Paul. And I'm going to tell you this. If you love Jesus and you love his church, let that be your motivation. Be similarly motivated by that cause. Because it's a cause worth living for and it's a cause worth dying for. Because one day he's going to see you. You'll see him face to face. And you know what? It will be worth it. It'll be worth it all. And lastly, he knew his calling very quickly. He knew his calling. He knew what God had called him to do. He says, I can't read it. I get too many. He says, it's through the preaching of the gospel which I have been entrusted by the command of God. You see that? On the road to Damascus, when he was made a new creature in Christ, God gave him a commission. God gave him a calling. God gave him a command. And he says, I want you to go. I'm going to show you what you must suffer. Well, he told us to Ananias to tell Paul. What what you're going to suffer for my name's sake. And you're going to preach the gospel before kings. That's what Paul did. He knew his place in God's story. He knew his place in his story. He knew what his calling was. He was able to define that. He knew his gifts, and he used those gifts unreservedly, unstintingly, for the glory of God throughout his life. He knew what he was about. He knew what he was made for. And that's what made him such a blessing. And similarly... Although you may not preach, you may not be a scholar, 
you are called at your conversion on your Damascus Road experience day when you came to see the light about, see who Jesus was, and you were transformed in that moment. You became a new creature. One of the things that happened in that moment when God recreated you is that he gave you gifts. He gave you potential that no one else has. He took your personality and he married it with spirit-empowered potential to do what no one else can do. See, Paul's not unique in any of these things. You have been called by God and gifted by God as Paul was, as I have been. And the greatest joy that any of us can have, I believe, is to find our place in God's story, in his story or in history. Because God's still writing his story. God is still completing the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And you have a place in that story. You have a calling in that story. You have a role in that story, in this church, in your home, in your place of business, on your street with your neighbors. God wants to use you. God wants to empower you, take the gifts that he has sovereignly, supernaturally given you and use you to be a blessing here and out there. So I'm, I'm sort of in that place right now, personally. I spent 32 years in my church in Georgetown. And since September... I'm sort of, I'm praying, I'm asking God. And I know that he has a place for me. And I know that he has a calling for you. Now one of two things is going to happen. In my church and in this church. You're going to survive or you're going to thrive. You're going to limp along or you're going to run. And much of that is dependent upon what you do with the talents and the gifts that God has given to you. This church needs you. You. You say, I got nothing to give. That's a lie. It's a lie of Satan. How can I can't make an impact lie? God has gifted you. If you're saved, God has gifted you. He's called you. And he wants to put you into service. So join me where I am in my journey and just pray. Say, God, where do you want me to serve? What's, what's the next thing for me? And if you are serving, double down. Pour your heart into it. Whatever your hand finds to do, whatever ministry God has called you to, do it with all of your heart for the glory and the honor of Jesus. Living Hope Alliance or Living Hope Georgetown, as we're called now. We can put up banners. We can change our website. We can do all kinds of things. But it's really not going to make a huge impact until the people of our church and the people of this church make some fundamental commitments about identity. I'm a slave called to represent Jesus. About purpose, godliness. The incarnate word, and the living word will produce godliness in my life. That's my passion. Motivation, heaven, not what this world offers, and calling.
What gifts? How can I serve my king? How can I make a difference? When we get those fundamental, basic things settled as Paul had them settled in his heart, look out. It's then that God does immeasurably and abundantly more than we ask or imagine in this church for his glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, I just thank you so much for the Apostle Paul. He wrote one place, 1 Corinthians 11 1, follow me as I follow Christ. And Lord, we have endeavored to do that this morning, to look to the Apostle who looked to Jesus, to see how, Lord, you transformed and changed his life. I pray, Lord, that you would do that in us. I pray, Father, that fundamentally we would experience these changes in identity and purpose and motivation and calling that we would be a blessing in this place and on our street and the place we work tomorrow. For your honor and your glory, we pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen.